and welcome back to another episode of the DD Geopolitics podcast. I am once again joined by JM and Lydia, and today we are seated, sitting with one of our favorites, Mark Sloboda, security analyst and senior lecturer, um, a, a U.S. Navy vet just like me, but he's a nuke and currently writing for Sputnik. Mark, how are you? Hi, uh, Sarah, Lydia, just me. Thanks uh, for having me. Uh, it's always an honor and a pleasure to be on Double D Geopolitics. Double D, I love that. Go ahead, JM. Yes, Diamond Dogs. For those who know, <laughs> you know. I so. know, I know. <laughs> yes. And on, by the way, the subject of uh, worlds uh, changing, Recently, at the 24 August BRICS Summit, some new members were admitted, six in fact, Argentina, Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates. This was uh, quite unexpected because there's been talk about this, but it's never happened before, but it happened here. Mark, what do you make of this? Yeah, um, so this was a surprise. Um, I had no indication and i read no one uh, uh in in the global media really uh that was under the impression that countries were going to be brought into brics so quickly uh you know uh under you know a unanimous mechanism um i thought i knowing that there was you know uh 20 20 some nearly uh, 23 24 countries that had formally applied to BRICS and another 20 more that were knocking on the door and expressing interest. I thought uh, the BRICS summit uh, would uh, end with um, basically a pathway, a, a framework for expansion laid out uh, by the five existing members because it hadn't existed uh, up until this point and and that the discussions of exactly then which countries to admit you know uh once the framework uh and the requirements were laid out but lo and behold they did the framework and the requirements uh and they admitted um uh these six new members uh all all in one fell swoop with promises that uh the next round of of uh, expansion would see another 10 members join there's no clear that that will necessarily be next year but uh obviously it is already uh in the framework um and i i think uh, it's very interesting um we don't know of course you know what the internal discussions were um, you know, being a fly on the wall. But obviously, you know, there are a wide range of uh, sometimes competing interests uh, among uh, the BRICS members. I mean, particularly between, you know, say, India and China. Uh, I think everyone is, is you know, well aware that there are some dis disagreements and geopolitical tensions there, uh, you know, and not just over a uninhabitable plateau at the top of the world. Um, but uh, th they came to this uh, agreement. Uh, obviously, it must have been agreed on beforehand and, and was not leaked. Um, and uh, it's also very interesting to take a look at the question, the countries that were admitted. 
Now, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates uh, first then, these are what you, what the West, what the U.S. will certainly consider partial defectees from their camp. I mean that that it's it's that it's that blatant. Now it doesn't mean a, a complete rupture between Saudi uh, U.S. relations and and uh, or anything like that, but it's quite clear that Saudi Arabia is exerting its sovereignty for the first time, perhaps in its existence, uh, from U.S. hegemony, um, and it is looking for options. Uh, it is looking for foreign policy options, and I think there are a couple of reasons for that. Um, and first of all, you cannot underestimate the amount of personal animosity between Mohammed bin Bonsa. I'm sorry, Mohammed bin Salman uh, and Joe Biden. <laughs> Um, and uh, you, you, you just can't uh, underestimate that. There is an incredible amount of personal hostility there. Um, secondly, um, I, I think that the experience that uh, Mohammed bin Salman has had as the, the brat prince of Saudi Arabia – uh, this about face when he first came to power and was lashing out militarily, um, you know, at countries around the region, Libya and Syria, in line with U.S. foreign policy interests. And I think to a large extent, he feels like he was thrown under the bus. And then he saw the example of Russia intervening to protect their ally, their their one firm ally in the Middle East, um, you know, in open defiance of the U.S., I think that really impressed them, that type of loyalty. Not that they love the Assad regime, not that they love it now, uh, but that type of, of decisive will to power and loyalty, uh, considering, you know, uh, he has to look at the way the U.S., you know, first helped elevate Saddam Hussein to power and then destroyed him. Uh, made agreements with Gaddafi and then destroyed him, um, uh, th has thrown repeated rounds of Kurds under the bus. And and I, I think that uh, there um, was also a feeling that the U.S. had abandoned them in Yemen um, and that Obama had backed out uh, of regime change operations in Syria uh, after the U.S. after the Russian uh, intervention put forces on the ground, leaving the GCC countries and Turkey to hold the bag, of which Saudi Arabia quickly got out of that that operation. Uh, so I I think he he feels that he can't trust the U.S. geopolitically and militarily, and then perhaps most decisively is um, he saw Saudi not just. Mohammed bin Salman in this point, but, uh, you know, the the Saudi foreign policy elite, uh, you know, the elite of of the monarchy, they saw how the U.S. weaponized its control of the global financial uh, and economic uh, architecture um, 
to go after Russia in an existential economic war side of way, seizing its assets, trying to destroy the ruble, trying to cut the the perhaps the world's biggest global commodity exporter out of the global markets um, and to cut it off uh, from the the institutions of global finance of which swift is you know uh, the, the most obvious but certainly isn't the only one um and there was a i think a come to god moment come to allah where saudi arabia said that could be us in the near future um and that scared them so um they have definitely made a, I think, now an irrevocable choice not to split completely from the U.S. because they are still, uh, you know, very embedded with them in terms of military supplies and the like. But they're looking for foreign policy options and BRICS and a uh, an associative status with the Shanghai Cooperation Organization uh, is is the the most obvious uh, steps uh, on that path. Um, and the United Arab Emirates, you know, very similar, um, uh, perhaps uh, financially uh, uh, even more important uh, in that regard, uh, likewise. And if Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates come knocking on your door and say, uh, hey, you know, we're 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 half stepping out of the U.S. camp, can we come in? You don't say no to that, right? There's too much. Um, economic and geo, uh, power there and and geopolitical import uh, reflecting in those two countries. Um, if we take a look at Ethiopia, I mean, you you would take that I think that was the biggest surprise on the list. Um, if anything, I probably expected to see Indonesia there. Um, although I've heard that they're on the short list for the next round of expansion, uh, simply because of their size and and for another Pacific representation. Uh, but Ethiopia gives another voice uh, to uh, Africa uh, alongside Egypt. And Egypt, we know, was pushed very hard by Russia because Russia and Egypt have very good uh, relations uh, right now um, have, uh, you know, since uh, this uh, current uh, regime in Egypt gained power. Um, and, um, you know, I think that Russia is having a, a return to Nasser moment where they're they're flirting with with Egypt uh, as another pivot point, you know, at least half out of the U.S. camp. Uh, obviously, relations with with the U.S. and Egypt have been somewhat strained uh, in recent years uh, since, uh, you know, the the U.S. basically, if they didn't actually push him, then at least stood out of the way and, and let Mubarak uh, fall without without uh, any attempt to uh, um, save him. Um, so Ethiopia is is more than likely a consolation to to South Africa to give Africa more representation. And it, in that characteristic, it is not a bad choice. And um, I was listening to your interview with Alexander Gelievich uh, last week, uh, an old uh, associate of mine from Moscow State University. Um, we worked together for a couple of years. 
Um, and I wholeheartedly agree that Ethiopia is an interesting choice in, shall we say, the geosymbolic significance that Ethiopia is one of those countries, the one you know, country uh, perhaps in Africa that didn't completely succumb to Western colonialism and, and has an is interesting historical symbolism in that regard. Um, Argentina was obviously brought in as, you know, uh, perhaps the second most important country in South America uh, after Brazil, a Spanish speaking country, more importantly. Um, and it gives South America, Latin America, another voice uh, at, you know, what is essentially the kernel of a multipolar world order uh, at the table. Now, the problem with Argentina is it's got problematic politics, and we may see an anti, um, uh, a pro-Western uh, uh, political power uh, uh, take uh, residence there very soon. Uh, so, you know, that one that one is uh, uh, problematic, but uh, it, it it's not scarcely the only country in that regard. Brazil had a pro-American president, uh, you know, in, in office just recently, um, although perhaps he was less overtly um, pro-American geopolitically than he could have been uh, than than many of us were fearing, um, you know, so. Uh, that is uh, in uh, in interesting uh, spread. I Iran is, you know, also kind of a no brainer. It was pushed very hard by Russia, important economically, important civilizationally, and also has been made a shall we say a pariah state by the West, and also cut off from the global uh, economy uh, there. So. Um, very interesting to have, you know, shall we say, the, the beating heart of Shia and Sunni Islam, both in bricks at the same time. Um, you know, there's a lot of questions about, you know, where does bricks go from here? How does it become more than just a, a talking shop? And I think its future lies in the, the probably less than geopolitically sex, uh, sexy notion of financial multipolarity um you know for a lot of us who who think you know philosophically about geopolitics uh or militarily economics is, is sometimes you know a a a back row concern it shouldn't be uh but you know that is often the case uh but if there's anything that binds the countries of the world together right uh, and has, you know, historically, even before the current system of of uh, global connections, it's trade. Uh, and and there were global trade networks before Bretton Woods. I, I know it's it's uh, sometimes uh, hard to believe that, but but there were. Um, and I think what in many ways I've heard uh, people describe, uh, you know, the development of BRICS, uh, the BRICS New Development Bank, and uh, the mechanisms that they are slowly but surely starting to build, not as a alternative Bretton Woods, I think, as I've heard some suggest, but as an unraveling of Bretton Woods. Um, what they're pr promoting at the moment there there is aspiration to have an alternative BRICS currency perhaps a basket currency as an alternative uh global reserve currency to the US dollar uh 
but that is a very significant undertaking, and it's not something that can be done, say, as quickly as inviting six in new members. But what they're pushing right now is an interim measure while they start conceiving of, of how to go about that um, is encouraging uh, the trade among BRICS members um, and other countries uh, in each other's currencies to at least get out of the dollar as much as possible in that regard. And finally, the BRICS New Development Bank, you know, which you know I think many have posited correctly as a, an alternative to to the World Bank and and the IMF um, in uh current member currencies instead of just the dollar and I, i'm sure that process uh, will continue um and uh, i think russia has prov and, and iran have shown an excellent example uh to the rest of brics how countries can survive uh even uh when under intense uh economic war by the west and and even thrive uh, and, you know, at least uh, in relative terms. Uh, so I, I think it's very significant to watch where BRICS goes from there, um, you know, not just in terms of, of how it integrates these new members. And it won't always be an easy path. Um, uh, these countries will have very different interests and not every country within BRICS is actively seeking a, shall we say, a confrontational break with the West. They're all agree that they want a multipolar world order with more fair and representative balance of voices of the, you know, uh, different parts of the world at the table. But they say that's not necessarily directed, right? quote unquote, against anyone else. But they automatically are, you know, wh wh whether, you know, India and South Africa and Brazil and, and many of the new members want to admit it or not, when your uh, erstwhile opponent uh, wants to maintain the unipolar moment of US-led global Western hegemony, and you want a more balanced world that that puts you in automatic opposition. Uh, so uh, you you can't get around that. Now I know that you know India and Brazil, you know they don't want a comfort. They think that they can go softly into a multipolar world uh, and escape uh, open conflict with the West. And they possibly can. I mean, they've got that historical. Uh, you know, quasi neutrality, you know, as as uh, uh, history, uh, you know, to to draw on. But they're only really going to be capable of that because countries like Russia and China step up to the table and take the active hits. Right. If it wasn't for that, they would be the ones uh, feeling some level of extreme pressure uh, from the United States. And the U.S. has threatened them with sanctions for continuing to trade with Russia. You know, being a hegemon, that's what hegemons do. They threaten, um, you know, the stick, uh, you know, however ineffectively they often wield it. Um, and, and India just 
continues flirting with them, flirting with Briggs and thinking that it can go softly. But the only reason it's able to do that is because the U.S. doesn't risk putting more pressure on India to to knuckle under to its hegemonic designs is because it's too important of a pivot state. So it's playing on its geopolitical importance uh, in that regard. And Brazil does does much the same thing, uh, it, perhaps in an even more precarious position, low, being located in, you know, the U.S.'s hemisphere, as they still often refer to it, you know, uh, in in lines of, of manifest destiny. Um, so um it's uh, not always going to be easy for the the new members i think to achieve that unanimous consensus something that the eu has has recently had problems with thanks to hungary uh it should it should be noted um the expansion of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization uh for instance to include both India and Pakistan that can be troublesome <laughs> um and um it often um prevents you from having a more focused decision making process and interest um but there is i i guess the idea that having everyone at the table is better than not having them, you know, even if the table is a little bit more raucous and undivided is, is better than not having them at the table at all. And I think it's also very significant. Uh, uh, one, uh, obviously Putin was not at the BRICS summit. Um, and, uh, however much the West may try to frame it that way, it was obviously not a, a success story of isolation of Russia, because Russia was still represented there, Lavrov was there, the expansion went forward, Russia's interests were representative, um, uh, Putin spoke via video conference, but it was perhaps a little bit of a successful slight and humiliation of Putin himself with these, uh, frankly, bullshit uh, international criminal court charges from another captive UN institution. Um, uh, they achieved that. Uh, I think the other significant is that Macron uh, came begging to be invited and was uh, resoundly refused, uh, which, however much that BRICS may represent itself as not being an anti-Western organization, uh, I don't think there's really much of a clear message to that. You know, the door is closed. <laughs> Come back to us when when you're ready to treat with all of our members civilly. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about Macron and Africa lately, <laughs> because um, uh, is there any commonality between the two of them? Because increasingly, I'm finding it hard. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, right on the heels of the BRICS, not on invitation, d not even a d invitation, just flat out of rejection. Um, we're there. We're watching France uh, lose its grip on uh, Africa and francophone, well, francophile Africa, Franc Afrique. Um, but now we're seeing we've seen uh, Burkina Faso, Niger, and now uh, Gabon uh, falling and changing their governments pretty much overnight. With Burkina Faso and Niger at least outright rejecting Fran French. Uh, um, 
French presence in their countries. Um, what are your thoughts on the goings on in Africa? We now have a North African, a West, an East African, and a South African member in BRICS. So looking in West Africa, I would think that 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 region should be looked at next for additions into Africa. Did you say Frank of Freaks? Because yeah, that's that's uh, <laughs> Frank a Frank a freak. <laughs> I, yeah, I understand. I hope our audience understands too. But if they don't, then that one might work for them as well. Um. So yeah, I mean, this is extremely interesting, and I think first of all, it it builds on, shall we say, revolutionary movements in Burkina Faso and Mali that that you know are perhaps the the giants, not really giants, of course, but, you know, uh, at least aspirational giants uh, who have already carved this path. Um, and it's very interesting. I did a, a piece on my own tube, YouTube channel, um, The Real Politic, uh, about a half a year ago about this phenomenon of that is occurring across Africa, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, in countries like Burkina Faso and Mali and Central African Republic uh, in particular, where protesters uh, and, and sometimes uh, political parties are waving the Russian flag. And uh, this is something that has been addressed in the Western media with kind of like horror, right? Outrage. And and just as far as they are concerned, another piece of evidence of the backwardness and ignorance of these countries that they are so easily falling under the sway of, of Russian propaganda and influence operations. And, and, you know, this goes back, you know, quite clearly to the Kaganite uh, racism of Joseph Burrell referring the EU foreign policy, high muckety muck, uh, referring to Europe as a garden and the rest of the world, particularly looking down at Africa as a, uh, a jungle that breeds too much. I mean, that, that that's exactly what, what he was talking about, too high of a, a growth rate, that, that, that sort of thing. Um, and uh, they're, they're, they're just out, outraged at this. And it's not even because of a common, uh, you know, oppositional ideology at this point, right? Because Russia isn't communist. I mean, there are communists in Russia, but Russia is not a communist country, uh, and neither are they communist revolutionaries. Um, so what's up with this? Um, and really is is really really kind of simple russia is resisting the west what these countries still see as and and with very good reason as their colonial and now neo-colonial masters whose yoke they want to throw off whose exploitation they they want to end they see russia resisting the west actively in a way that no other country is or really can in a way that they often lack the power to do and you really cannot again underestimate the the powerful symbolic importance of that um of that hope of that defiance and it 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 is 
been added to by the operations of this, you know, rogue, now rogue um, uh, security contractor, uh, mercenary company, Wagner, uh, who, uh, you know, uh, showed up in Africa. And, uh, you know, it was the deal that many of these countries, Mali, Burkina Faso, they uh, kick uh, French troops out of their countries, the troops that were there uh, ostensibly uh, to provide security functions and help fight uh, Islamic jihadism and, and terrorism in those countries. Um, and, um, you know, of course, we're really there as, as part of uh, uh, boots on the ground, as part of a Western military footprint in the countries. Um, and they kicked the French forces out. And they invited Wagner in uh, to provide uh, domestic security for their regimes and also, you know, to assist them in, in the fight against, you know, often jihadist rebels, uh, although not only. Um, and um, that has further uh, infuriated the West because um, whatever else Wagner may may be or may not be, and that's a really open question now, uh, considering the apparent death of uh, Prigozhin and Utkin. Um, but um, Wagner are all essentially ex-Russian intelligence and special forces, uh, military intelligence and special forces, ex-Russian spetsnaz. And of course, there is the assumption that you you know you're never really ex-intelligence anything um so uh this is this has been uh tremendously successful now uh with uh it having spread to niger uh and niger at least not um visibly as yet reaching out to russia and wagner but certainly the idea that connections have been made at least under the table and now gabon quickly following suit um France, uh, you know, is is watching, you know, this neo-colonial influence empire that they have, you know, resurrected uh, in uh, Africa over the last few decades. You know, the idea that they never really left um, uh, very quickly falling out of their grasp. And also there is a fear in France um, that was, I think, brought to the fore. Uh, by the visit of the U.S.'s chief ogre and leg breaker, uh, Victoria Newland, uh, to Niger, uh, I've heard her referred to in, in uh, RT Press as um, regime change, Karen, which which I just simply loved. Um, that that really, uh, <laughs> really. I, did, I I can't. She didn't even bring any cookies this time. Yeah, yeah. Well, she. I mean, uh, the the cookies are the threat. I mean, that was there. Don't you even look at Wagner, or I'll bring out the cookies and the regime change on you. Um, and <laughs> in Niger, uh, France has a military base uh, with some fifteen hundred troops, but also. Uh, unbeknownst, I'm sure, to most Americans out there, the U.S. also has military bases in Niger and a very interesting number, uh, 1,001 troops in Niger. Um, I'm, 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 you know, my my uh, 
esoteric um, uh, aesthetics are, are are very interested in in that particular number. Uh, but a very very substantial drone base, perhaps the U.S.'s largest drone base uh, in Africa, the most developed is there as well. Uh, and I think France is afraid that the the new junta in Niger was basically told, look it. If you don't invite the Russians in, we'll kind of de facto let you exist as long as you don't mess with our military base. You can do whatever you want to the French, right? But <laughs> we we stay there. And I think the France are afraid that the U.S. Uh, will throw them under the table in that regard. And, and we'll have to see moving forward. Um, I, I think many are surprised that Nigeria uh, hasn't already uh invaded uh on behalf you know under the rubric of ECOWAS, the economic community of West African states, um uh hasn't already invaded, but there seems to be some domestic political opposition. Um and uh there's a great show of support from neighbors, uh not only Mali and Burkina Faso, but also Guinea uh and Algeria. Um and uh really it was just in the days after this, after the uh, overthrow of the uh, corrupt uh, uh, French-backed uh, president of Niger, uh, that the defense minister of Algeria uh, flew to Moscow and had consultations with the defense minister of Russia, Sergei Shoigu. So I, I thought that was very interesting. And we have since seen uh, Algeria refuse France use of its airspace uh, for military operations uh, in Niger, which would be extremely limiting uh, to them. Uh, so, um, you know, it is is really an open question um, yet whether we will see open military conflict between, shall we say, the the new revolutionary states of Africa particularly West Africa and those that are still loyal uh, to to uh, their neo-colonial masters, Nigeria and Ivory Coast, at least among them, uh, possibly some others. But Nigeria is the big population, economic and military welterweight uh, in that part of Africa. There's really nothing else to compare to them there. So it would be, at least on paper, fairly lopsided. But uh, Nigeria has, you know, its own problems with its own um, jihadist rebels. Um, and um, I think that many people would find, particularly if they don't have French air power to support them, that uh, they would have a much more difficult time uh, with an invasion and occupation of Niger, uh, then it's generally given credit for, you know, when considering their comparative uh, economic and, and military sizes, uh, particularly if Mali and Burkina Faso and other countries there get involved in well. But this this very well could become uh, not only an inter-African conflict, uh, but of course the geopolitical importance of the you know the U.S. and France trying to maintain their neo-colonial importance there, uh, a, a new uh, axis of active geopolitical confrontation 
And China, of course, is also extremely uh, behind the scenes, powerful in terms of of, uh, economics and and politics in Africa as well. And I don't think that they would appreciate or uh, let stand an open uh, move towards uh, military destabilization of, of West Africa by the United States. So there's there's a lot of rooms for this to blow up as as you know not Ukraine but the next quote unquote Ukraine uh as you know we're we've really already entered what you could call world war 3 right the the geopolitical confrontation uh between the west and the rest you know led uh, to some degree by Russia and China um it's not a cold war right let's let's be it it's already a hot war uh but there are very ill-defined rules of the game still governing it at this point, such that it is not quite direct confrontation. There is still a a slim degree of of implausible proxy uh, separation there. Um, uh, but uh, the U.S. continues at the same time while uh, openly engaging. Uh, in conflict with Russia to poke China, which is just madness. It is, it is, you know, in in realist foreign policy terms, balance of power politics. It is simply madness. Uh, it is really uh, impossible to see what could possibly be driving it, rather other than this uh, supremacist ideology of exceptionalism that so suffuses the foreign policy thinking of of the US blob their their deep state their foreign policy and military elite um the, it's practically guaranteeing the the sooner rather than later collapse of of US hegemony and let's you know it's something that we're all aspirational to as long as the world doesn't end in the process of it definitely mark uh, you know, my job on this podcast is kind of to be this voice of a regular person because on our channel, I'm in charge of the chat, kind of. So I read a lot of uh, opinions there. So going a little bit back to the to Africa, but also since you mentioned China, um, a lot of people, uh, when they uh, read about the recent developments in Africa, all the, you know, regime changes, uh, most of the people are happy, I guess, that the West is being kicked out, that the, the influence there is diminishing. But at the same time, there are also people who say, well, but look at the situation. You had the West, you know, essentially controlling Africa, but then uh, it's kind of uh, like like we say in Russia, it's exchanging you know, one thing for the other. Then they're just going to end up with Russia and China controlling them. So, what are your thoughts? How do you see? Is there a possibility of that, or and how do you see the difference between the approach that the West takes towards those African countries? And the approach that Russia and China take towards those countries. And is that opinion that some people voice uh, actually, you know, legitimate? Do you maybe you agree with it? 
Yeah. Okay. So uh, first of all, let's let's talk about Russia now. Russian influence in Africa is not insubstantial, but neither is Russia, uh, shall we say, a big player at the table in Africa, despite you know their obvious symbolic importance uh, and the presence of Wagner. Uh, growing economic relations, you know, not just in terms of um, the grain and fertilizer it provides the continent um, as as the number one exporter of both to the world, um, but also, you know, the expertise uh, and investment it can provide in resource extraction, you know, oil and gas. Uh, but that said, you know, Russia's trade in Africa is less than a tenth of, for, for, for say, what the U.S. is, is, right? Much, much less the rest of the West. So Russia is, I would have said a few years ago, uh, Russia that Africa is beyond Russia's geopolitical horizon, um, that Russia is not the Soviet Union, and, and obviously it does not have you know, the ability to engage in a, a global Cold War with the U.S., and it has to pick and choose its fights. For instance, Serbia can't help at all, right? There's there's nothing that Russia can do, really, for Serbia. They can cheerlead, but, you know, that's it. Uh, I would have said much the same with Africa. Uh, but obviously, Russia has has become more involved there. Um, but I think a lot of that is more political and symbolic than it is any real ability to exert, uh, shall we say, smart power influence uh, or or economic weight uh, or military weight, right? Russia has very limited power projection capabilities in terms of its military. Its Its military is not built for power projection beyond, shall we say, the near abroad. It really isn't. Syria was the absolute limit of that. And I think Syria really shocked the West with, with how well Russia was able to support that operation there, particularly in terms of, of air power. Uh, but um, uh, I, I think, you know, you're not going to see Russian forces uh, assisting any country in Africa. Wagner, yes, possibly, or a replacement uh, Redut convoy, some some possible replacement um, uh, security contract company. But that that is relatively light boots on on the ground, all things considering. Now. Uh, I know this is going to surprise a lot of people, but China has been in Africa for decades, like like since the the first Cold War, and they have long established political and economic relations. That, of course, with China's growing uh, economic importance as as now the most important economic country in the world, um, China um, has has huge much greater influence in most of Africa than than Russia. Uh, and and growingly, of course, it's pushing the US out. And it's it's quite obvious, I think, about the nature of those two influences, how the US and China compete in Africa. Uh, China competes with investment. Uh, they want resources from Africa and they do fair business 
and we'll build all the infrastructure needed to help make you a stable state uh, and help us get those uh, resources on top of it, right? China builds infrastructure wherever they go um, and on much better of uh, economic, you know, financial terms than than the Washington consensus, quote unquote, ever had for for Africa. What, however, m- much Western propaganda likes to talk about the Chinese debt trap. That's just pure projection. That's the way they do business, and and African countries know it. Um, the U.S., on the other hand. Uh, their influence in Africa is all around their military presence there, and they even have a a, a global empire military command there, AFRICOM, right? That's AFRICOM is there, the U.S. military command for their Africa, right? Um, uh, you know, the, uh, the U.S. is the only country in the world that has, you know, that range of of uh, power projection and and you know. Uh, hundreds, uh, you know, realistically uh, over a thousand military base uh, empire uh, throughout the world. Um, And despite that, we see Western influence waning because that military might can really can only very crudely be used and it can destroy and it can threaten, but it can't build. They can't build anything. Um, and increasingly, they, they, they can't invest either. Um, and uh, that's why we see so many uh, African countries turn to China. African c- countries don't fear having Western hegemony replaced with Chinese hegemony. Because China has been there for decades already, and they know that's not how the Chinese do business. The Chinese want to do business, the period. They have no interest and have never made any uh, attempts to force political or social changes in African countries the way the U.S.-led West always does. Why? Because they have no interest in hegemony. It's, it's, it, there is zero history of it whatsoever. You, whatever government you have in that particular place, China wants to do business with it, whether they personally think, well, you know, we, we, we think a lot of that government. They don't think in those terms. They don't try to change. They will stabilize what is there to the best of their ability to, uh, you know, help pursue their interests there, uh, but they will not force political or social change the way the West does. And, you know, that is part of the definition of hegemony. So I would say that anyone, uh, you know, shall we say, uh, I, I really doubt that there's any lay people out there listening to double D geopolitics, to be perfectly honest. But That's a really uh, nice compliment, but you'd yeah. be surprised. Yeah, okay. It, it, <laughs> I think that the listeners out there are are smart enough to know that that China just doesn't do hegemony in that way. I mean, you can talk about soft power influence, but that is is not the same thing as demanding uh, political and social changes to countries the way the U.S. does. African countries realize it, and I hope you know that. I, and and I, I trust actually that at least your listeners out there uh, and and my listeners hopefully as well uh, understand that.
I do want to talk a little bit about cultural hegemony because you mentioned that and I was talking about that last night and we have been trying to tell people why because you know they see these Russian flags and um African rallies and protests and they say oh they're just trading one colonizer for another and I, I think that people in the West don't understand that <laughs> Russia and China kind of suck at soft power <laughs> and cultural hegemony and they never seem to like really really try to push that on other people anyway I mean they have multiple ethnicities within their own borders that they celebrate uh, their cultural differences but I always think that's a funny, a funny notion that they're just that they're trading one colonizer for the other, uh, trading the United States for China or Russia, as if those two things are completely alike. Okay, so again, China has no troops in Africa, and and Russia has, at best, a security contract company that tried to uh, arguably mutiny against or overthrow the Russian government. So. I mean, um, there, there, there's questionable in that regard. There, there, there. Again, there is no evidence that, unlike the West, that China or Russia has sought to enforce uh, or to push political or social change on African countries. Russia, uh, even if they wanted to, uh, which they don't, Russia lacks the capability to. Right, Russia lacks the the economic size, the, the the military power projection to engage, and China has no interest in in power projection uh, in Africa. Um, it's entirely focused on the coming war that the U.S. will wage on them uh, over Taiwan in the Pacific. Uh, they're very laser focused on that, uh, and and have no interest in any other regard, um, and. China and Russia don't – again, they don't have uh, directed soft power in Africa to any real extent. And you're right. Russia sucks at soft power. Russia has proved – if there's one thing that the last you know decade in Ukraine has proved is that Russia can't even properly exert soft power power in Ukraine, a country that has the same church, uh, or at least did and, and until the new regime is trying to uproot it, uh, root and branch, um, and, uh, with uh, the majority of the country speaking the same language, you know, coming from uh, at least a related uh, ethnicity and, and history and culture. Um, Russia can't even do soft, directed soft power there. When you, when they see uh, people in Africa uh, raise Russian flags. I mean, I, I know there are people in the West that will automatically assume that that's due to FSB agents on the ground, uh, you know, or you know, something along those regards. If only, right? If 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 only that were the case. I'm I'm sorry. This is Africans simply latching on to a symbol of resistance, and Africa saying, "Oh, really? I mean, seriously? Okay, all right, yeah, go with that, right? <laughs> I mean, that's um, uh, Russia is is really not very good at soft influence. One thing that and and China likewise as well. There are two inward focused in in that regard uh, to to uh, export their culture in any directed way. What Russia and China have in Africa, however, is much more efficient 
and powerful diplomatic power. And and obviously that's not something that reaches down into society uh, in the way of of cultural hegemony, right? Russia isn't spreading orthodoxy uh, and and uh, ideational conservative society in Africa, no matter how much the woke crowd and in the U.S. might try to, you know, blackboard up some crazy conspiracy thing or theories linking Russian uh, social conservatism with uh, anti. LGBT elements in 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 Africa. There's there's zero connection. Sorry, you're 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 drawing up crazy board stuff. Uh, it's simply that the most of the rest of the world hasn't adopted that postmodern liberal ideology yet, and you just don't understand that. Um, China, likewise, you know, yeah, I I know there's a few Confucian institutes out there, and there's all kinds of conspiracies. All right, come on, get serious. Uh, uh, maybe if China develops an export oriented movie industry that suddenly finds appeal in the rest of the world. I mean, even Bollywood struggles in that regard and Bollywood's been around for decades. Um, uh, Africa, uh, both Russia and, and China have very limited soft power influence uh, on Africa. It's, it's, and, and what is adopted is uh, adopted domestically as, as a show of defiance. Um, both countries are really behind the guard, uh, you know, in that game, but also, um, part of that cultural hegemony stems from an ideology of universalism in, in the U S case that has, uh, morphed from, you know, the, the baseline, uh, quote unquote, democratic capitalism, uh, to uh, now something very much that I, I think re needs redefinition as postmodern liberalism, um, something that doesn't often find a, a willing audience. But it is what, in their regard, in, in their twisted bubble vision of the world, a universal ideology that everyone needs to be woke to. Um, China doesn't have that. Chinese communism, quote unquote, and I really hesitate to call it that. Um, it is not a revolutionary communism. No one would. I, I don't even know. I mean, maybe the most crazy Republican, uh, you know, um, Bible thumpers uh, in the U.S. might accuse China of trying to export revolutionary communism around the world, but it's, they're completely barking up the wrong tree, right? Um, China has not been that way uh, for decades uh, and, and was never really that way. Neither Russia nor China have universal ideologies or societies to export, which makes them by definition very bad at cultural hegemony. You you can only really have cultural hegemonic power, directed cultural hegemonic power, if you've got a universalism to push. And neither China nor Russia do, which is, I think, 
at least part of the reason why they're always well behind that soft power game uh, compared to the U.S. Yeah, so to as a closing question then, what we don't want to ask, because our listeners are very interested in the broader geopolitics, it's what we provide, but it's all linked and all started by the war in Ukraine. So recently we have gotten more reports in the Russian press and some downplayed ones in the Western press about Ukrainian casualties, and the Ukrainians are going to be announcing any number of measures of uh, mobilization. To that end, what is a realistic prospect of how long Ukraine, as Ukraine, provided there's no direct NATO intervention, can keep this going? I'm sure that most of your listeners uh, want me to tell you that the collapse of the regime in the Kiev or some type of uh, peace settlement, some type of of, of grand uh, redrawing of of uh, Europe, you know, a la uh, Stalin and 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 the West. World War II is underway. Uh, no, um, I think that Ukraine, and I, I, it's not Ukraine, right? I mean, I, I don't, I hate referring to it as Ukraine. I hate people who do. Um, no, full disclosure, my wife is Crimean. We have family, you know, in Simferopol and all over East Ukraine, Donbass, Kharkov, and Odessa. And people often willfully forget that uh, there are, are Ukrainians on both sides of this conflict. In fact, Ukrainians have been fighting this conflict for the last decade, um, the civil conflict, and, and Russia only far, far too late uh and and even by putin's at ad, ad, admission uh intervened uh and joined joined uh, the fray uh if you will and um even if those ukrainians those shall we say east ukrainians not totally that but that's a good generalization identified now as Russians, or or to some degree identified before, uh, there is still very much a, a big civil conflict. So this is the U.S.-backed Kiev Putsch regime, and I have always referred to it as such, and and will never led any uh, lend it any legitimacy to speak on behalf of all Ukrainians because it doesn't have, never has had that legitimacy sham quote-unquote elections by a push not just literally at the barrel of a gun uh but uh under shelling of grad and neo-nazi azov jackboot with uh, millions disenfranchised political parties lustrated and now outright completely banned all political opposition uh harassed and now openly banned all critical media whatever i mean that's that's nothing democratic there however much the us might try to present it that way you know what whatever zelensky may have been or not been or thought when he became president he is now the leader of a banderite regime uh, and that, that is 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 what it is um I think it could continue on for years, perhaps decades. And I'm not the only one who has said so. Medvedev has suggested uh, that it could 
that last that long as well. Um, when this started a year and a half ago when Russia intervened, and uh, something I was like, well, better late than never, um, and it needed to be done, but I had no rose-tinted glasses. I was simultaneously on shows with people saying, oh, this is all going to be over in a couple of months and Russia's going to crush. And at the time I said, this is going to be a forever war that Ukraine, you know, a la Humpty Dumpty, once this fragile divide in Ukrainian national identity consumption was exposed and broken, right? This division between West and East Ukraine, right? Which is really about what it Ukraine is and, and what it means to be a Ukrainian. You can't put that back together again. You can't. Uh, I mean, it, it it's uh, worse than Ireland, I would say, in 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 many regards. Um, uh, and you know, maybe uh, some countries in in the Balkans have have similar ethno-political uh, divisions to, to compare it to. Uh, but um, I think that. The Western, after this counteroffensive of really, it's an offensive, okay, military terminology, uh, is over and failed. Does that mean that Russia is suddenly simply going to sweep the board and take Kiev? No. I mean, if there's two things, two lessons learned from the very fierce conflict that has raged there for the last year and a half, two, two big truisms. One is that surprise is impossible, all right? Certainly at the operational and strategic level with, with satellites and, and drone technology and humans and SIGINT, right? Uh, surprise is impossible. And even at the tactical, it's very, very hard. Um, so you always know when the when and where the opponent is coming, more or less, at least in any strategically significant way. The other thing is that offense is hard. Offense is costly. And defending in urban areas or uh, heavily fortified defenses nullifies so many advantages even of Russia's far superior fires uh, air power uh, electronic warfare everything right uh, it it makes offense very very hard and costly um i think that western support uh for the kiev regime military support will diminish, not even necessarily because of a lack of political will, which I do not believe, that certainly not in the US deep state, which really runs the government. I, I don't care. I mean, you can talk your political theater and, and what if Trump you know, wins the election or some, you know, some other nonsense like that. US presidents don't make US foreign policy. And if Trump's last presidency should should have made that perfectly clear to you. Uh, I don't know why you don't continue getting the message, but the American people don't decide U.S. foreign policy, whatever your American political theater, you know, uh, uh, presents itself as. Um, that bipartisan consensus in pursuit of U.S. hegemony is not going anywhere. Um, 
so um but the u the western military industrial capacity to supply ukraine is going to really drop for at least a year or two and i haven't seen the concerted political w uh, will backed up with money to really start the long-term contracts that will be necessary to push the military industrial complex towards a significant ramp up of production of crucial things like artillery shells uh, that the U.S. would need to overmatch Russia's military industrial production in the long term, but it's still possible. Uh, but in the short term, short to medium term, uh, the West is simply going to lack most useful things to provide to the Kiev regime uh, that it needs uh, to continue the war with offensive potential. Uh, you've we've already seen them run out of 155 millimeter shells and switch to uh, cluster munitions and 155 millimeter artillery shell jackets just so they can throw something. So so you know they can keep shelling something in what is an artillery attrition war fought largely with artillery. Um, yes, lots of other things too, but that's still the basic character of the conflict. So it's going to be limited capacity. F-16s is is again it's more political than and it won't have even if there's 60 or 120 or cent it's it's only going to raise the costs for russia it's it's not going to change uh you know the overall momentum of of the conflict but um to take cities like odessa Kharkov, dnipropetrovsk this will require much greater mobilization by Russia. Um, and Putin has actually spoken to that before. Um, they'll have to mobilize, you know, despite the high volunteer rate, uh, you know, of, of people signing up for professional contracts, you'll still have to mobilize another 600,000 to a million people uh, in order to take cities like that. Um, and that's not even talking West Ukraine. The people in West Ukraine, they hate Russians. That is the principal feature of their national identity conception with a visceral historical and cultural hatred that people who are not intimately connected with that culture cannot really begin to understand, right? It's right on a par with Polish hatred of Russia. Um, so um, I believe that Ukraine, the Kiev regime, can continue this conflict for many years, albeit at a lower level with less offensive potential. But even going simply on the defensive, they can hold out for an extremely long period of time where they attempt to use dirty tricks and long-range what amount to terror attacks with drones and other things uh, in order to try to sap political will uh, in Russia, which, you know, uh, they're not having a great deal of success in so far, but give them time. I mean, I'm sorry if this conflict continues for another year or two, which I believe it inevitably will, the Crimean Bridge will be destroyed, right? No matter how many times 
how effective Russian air defense and electronic warfare is, and it has been astonishingly effective. I think what the West must find frighteningly effective. You can always figure out a way to get one or two or something through, even if it's something like a better designed truck bomb like the first one. Uh, and that has become such a symbolic target for them that I'm I'm afraid that it's its life expectancy is, you know, it's on borrowed time. Uh and and similar type of attacks, right? aiming at skyscrapers uh, in Moscow City simply to create a 9-11 type visual as an attempt to, you know, shock and sap the political will of the Russian people. It, ultimately, I don't think it will be effective, but, you know, that is is what their goal will be. That's what they're engaged in uh, because of their inability to win offensive battle, uh, you know, on the battlefield. But I do not see this regime and the people backing it, and it has firm control of the country, whatever problems with with manpower, its press gangs roaming the country it has. It still has another two to three million men of military age that can be drawn on. And they're talking about exporting, getting the West to export military age men back from Europe to Ukraine and you know how many polls will we see put on uh, Ukrainian caps i think we've already seen significant uh, numbers of those manpower wise they can continue this you know and even with say half of the military and economic support that the west has given them over in the last year and a half they can continue this defensively for a long time and i'm not sure russia is capable of the mobilization and the costs that would be necessary to occupy, say, West Ukraine. I don't think that is realistic. I, I think it would be a nightmare uh, to occupy that part of the country. Uh, it would be a guerrilla war, which, you know, doesn't w would be very hard for most modern people to to understand and and I don't mean to be black pilling here I believe Russia is winning this conflict but I think we have to be realistic the Kiev regime is not going to sign surrender papers right um besides you know having passed laws uh you know to that regard if they did it wouldn't mean anything I mean Anything that they did sign, you, you, it wouldn't be fit to to wipe your ass with. I mean, let's be perfectly honest. After how many agreements, you know, from uh, the February twenty first agreement, two rounds of the Minsk Accords, you know, everything else has been broken. And the same thing with the West. This conflict doesn't end with some some grand new division of Ukraine or or Europe. This conflict ends just like. Because it's a conflict in the modern day, right? It's not a conflict of the last half century or the last century. This ends like the conflict in Syria ended, which is to say it didn't end, right? U.S. still occupies 
East Syria. Turkey still occupies North Syria. The Syrian government, you know, with a Russian and Iranian support, controls the core of the country, but will never have the resources to put the country back together um, uh, because, you know, the U.S. is sitting on their wheat and their oil, and they don't dare start a direct conflict with the U.S. or, or see Damascus bombed into the Stone Age. Uh, this is what the future of Ukraine looks like. Uh, perhaps ceasefires, um, uh, things that may uh, end the conflict for a few months, six months, a year even. But Ukraine is going to be a permanent, it's never going to be able to be put back together. And it will be a permanent bleeding wound of destabilization and instability for both Russia and Europe going forward for years, if not longer. That's, that's an even bleaker outlook for Ukraine than the professor gave us. My God. <laughs> I think I asked the professor, mm. what's the... Yeah. Yeah, I, I I saw. I think it, yeah, I I heard him say that Ukraine uh, won't exist. Well, Ukraine won't exist as one entity. I agree with that regard. There will be a partition of Ukraine. That partition will be informal at best, and will shuffle around and become, if anything, domestically even worse than it is now. Um, it's really a pity because there was nothing wrong within independent, neutral Ukraine, the neutrality that was written into their constitution uh, up until the uh, you know U.S.-backed Maidan Putsch in 2014, which then changed that to draw Ukraine, per, you know, the idea of permanently geopolitically flipping it into the Western camp. But Ukraine's Unity was dependent on an internal and external balance uh, of national identity conception and geopolitical aspirations largely on east-west lines. And once that balance was broken, you just can't put it back together again. I'm sorry. I mean, I was predict – I did a um, – um, if you're familiar with Model UN – uh, in the last decade, there has uh, decade plus now, I guess, uh, uh, security conferences that are rather than uh, have evolved alongside and and off of Model UN, where people play delegates of a country's national security council, and then different rooms. Uh, representing different countries, national security councils deal with with uh, an issue provided by a, a framework run uh, group who are or running the crisis scenario, as it's called. And I I was a participant in crisis scenarios when I was doing my uh, postgraduate work at the LSE in London back. 2009, 2010, the, those years there, and I eventually ran one in 2010. And my scenario was a civil war in Ukraine uh, with the U.S. and Russia entering on both sides, largely along east-west lines. Um, and I think that anyone who was seriously looking at Ukraine and what was happening in the country for the last couple of decades knows that this was perhaps inevitable at some point all things considered. There were actually 
science fiction conventions in Ukraine dedicated to the future civil war in Ukraine, because it's an actual period of, period of liter literature in Ukraine, or it was you know, back around 2010. In fact, Yatsenyuk went to one of those conferences, <laughs> um, which is, is uh, blackly ironic, all things considered. But yeah, so um, yes, I, I have a very uh, unfortunately tragic uh, vision of the future for Ukraine or parts of the former Ukraine or Ukraine rump state or whatever, Benderistan, as I like like to call uh, what has has evolved uh, out of West Ukraine and, you know, uh, subsumed most of the country since. Uh, it, it may be beaten back, but if 50 years of the Soviet Union couldn't beat the Banderism out of West Ukraine, I seriously doubt that a much softer Putin is going to be able to do it. Well, on that very cheerful note, I think you have given Lydia a lot of work because uh, she will be having to um, uh, tend to a lot of people commenting on this for hours. But, um, you know, <laughs> there's no point in sugarcoating things as you see as you see them. And um, I'm not quite sure if I'm quite so pessimistic, but I think that what you sketch out is nonetheless a unfortunately realistic prospect and one that must be borne in mind. Uh, we're coming up, though, on the 90-minute mark. We do have to close this out, but thank you so much for your insights. I know that I've learned something. I know our listeners will learn something, and that they'll enjoy this very much. Mark, thank you again. Thanks for having me, guys. Always uh -huh. an honor and a pleasure. Check out Mark on The Real Politic.